Um, I actually think that's a really, as a lawyer, I think it's a really grey area. And that's actually one of the hints and tips I'd use, whether you're either using an Instagram influencer or if you are one and you're about to contract with a company, that's the kind of thing that should be in there. Mm. Like any contract should have a term, a length of time. So if you think that Instagram influencer is going to be spruiking your product for the next you know, year and they're thinking one month, that's a massive difference mm. in expectations. Mm. You're listening to Behind the Clipboard, event experts empowering you to throw killer events for your business, workplace, social circle and beyond. We're giving you the insider toolkit, allowing you to make your events the talk of the town. Produced by Known Associates Events, it's time to go backstage with your hosts, Tamara Cook, Crystal Thane and Melissa Howie. Hello and welcome to today's In the Green Room interview with Roger Blow. Woohoo! Yeah, Hi. Roger. So Roger is the Practice Director at Cove Legal and has over 20 years experience as a solicitor and partner in some of Australia and the UK's largest law firms. In addition to his tax expertise, Roger is the go-to person in providing expert commentary in the area of media law to television, radio stations and the newspapers. And that's more along the lines of what we've got you here for today. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Greetings. Your name is so cool. If I was going to be represented by a lawyer, <laughs> I want to be represented by Roger Blow. I want Blow. like Blow by name, Blow by nature. Blow everyone else away. It's kind of like a stage name, but it is. it's not. It's actually a name. It's cool. Yeah. Although I did feel when I set up my law firm that Blow Legal, um, <laughs> it has I had my concerns challenges. that that wasn't going to attract the clientele that I generally work for. Mm. But clientele can pay cash though, so. Yeah. <laughs> I'd probably have a lot of work in uh, June Deluxe Magistrates Court, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but not necessarily, um, yeah. Uh, but no, it's uh, Cove Legal, therefore yeah, I had to come up with a different name. So tell us a little bit more about, about yourself. About myself. Uh, I am a uh, husband and father of two, a couple of boys, um, English. Been what? Over here. Yeah, sorry. Uh, been over here about 13 years now. Uh, really should sort citizenship out. Uh, and I'm a uh, solicitor of about 20 odd years in commercial litigation, as, as you said, starting out back in the UK. Um, and whilst my history has been more larger kind of commercial city firms last six years has been uh, has been my own firm cove legal uh and yeah we're what you call a boutique dispute resolution firm um so whilst we do kind of generic commercial litigation the two areas that that we've done a lot of especially in the last kind of five to eight years has been uh, either the taxation dispute work um but in particular also the media work uh so i started back in the uk acting for some politicians like a guy called uh, um, Mr. Kinnock, who was, um, ended up being the Vice President of the European Commission at one point. That's when I was working for him. And that kind of started me in that space. And I've always been fascinated by defamation and any kind of media side of things. And, uh, and I must admit, in the last you know, five odd years, obviously social media is now very much at the centre of, uh, of our lives generally. And therefore, it's got a big part, obviously, in the defamation space. So I now have a particular niche in uh, any kind of social media, online liability and brand protection. And outside of that, yeah, I think you mentioned uh, the uh, Hawaiian Rive Youth side. I'm a cyclist, so I do a fair bit of that, and uh, a musician, um, and uh, yeah, a bit of DJ available for weddings, parties, bar mitzvahs. Oh, okay. what? I yep. did not know this. Um, what's your cool <laughs> DJ name? Uh, DJ Rogue. Amazing. Yeah, my ten, my eleven year old came up with that. Oh, um, yeah. I like. Rog- it. Is it because you're a bit of a rogue? Uh, I wish. It's actually <laughs> just he said, "Well, your name's Roger." So you should be DJ Rogue. 
It's the most useful thing he's ever said. <laughs> Kids say DJ Blow things. didn't work for yeah. us. Again, uh, it's a good stage name. Um, mm. But, um, yeah, no. Too close I was, to home. Wrong clientele. Yeah, there's probably actually a DJ Blow out there somewhere I would well. say there was. Uh, yeah. Someone's actually probably chosen that name rather than being <laughs> given it uh, from birth. <laughs> I see. So what are some of the things people need to keep in mind when they're managing a business social media page? As a general rule, uh, if you're asking me as a lawyer, from a, especially from a defamation point of view, you're not usually going to be held liable for third-party content. So if you're talking about managing in the sense of other people coming in and uh, and posting things onto your either your Facebook page or your website, uh, so a key issue would be that you're not generally going to be liable for what's there if you didn't actually author it and create it, uh, unless and until you actually then get uh, notification from someone like me to say that the content um, is defamatory or potentially defamatory of someone else that's the key issue in that once you get that notice then the courts will at times um, have the capacity to find the host to call it that liable because they did know and they did nothing about it so once you get that notice then you need to think about whether or not you then go ahead and delete um, for me uh, a lot of people agonize over that concept of should I delete should I take it down um, I always say to a client well how do you make money in your business? What do you make a profit from? Newspapers make a profit from reporting stories, sometimes you know exciting, scandalous stories. So they may have a business reason to keep something up. Mm-hmm. But my personal view is, and I must admit, I when I'm writing to these potential hosts, I would be um, I would be looking to play on this. Uh, if you're not, if that's not how you make your money, if some if someone's saying, look, this content you're now publishing is um, is defamatory or in some way illegal in respect to the rights of someone else, legal rights. Why would you keep it up there if there's any doubt? Yeah. Uh, and all of us can look at something and know whether it's negative about someone else. So if it's something that's factual, may not be true. If you're not sure, then why would you keep it up there? Why would you then t- start taking the chance? And is that why a lot of Facebook communities have that sort of guidelines for posting? So if you're in breach of those as a third party, the moderator or the host can take anything down? Mm. Look, I, I think the idea of having guidelines to allow you to take stuff down is probably more of an online community yeah. political thing in that you don't need to tell people if you post something defamatory on my page or on my site, if it's nasty, I can take it down. You can take anything down. If you've got control, if you've got admin control and you know author control over any online space, you can take it down. Um, so to have rules about being nice to each other and if you aren't nice to each other, we will delete your content. That's more about the online community being quite um, political and very, very in favour of freedom of speech and freedom of expression and all those freedoms that people like to stress uh, and, and hold to be very important. The online community in particular is is very vigilant in that, in that area and for that reason I think um, people tread carefully about just widespread deletion for no cause. Mm. So that's why I think people build in these these kind of nice uh, huggy uh, rules about being... Warm, fuzzy yeah, rules. Yeah, warm, fuzzy, be nice to each other. And if you're not nice, we'll delete it. Well, I, I, I'm saying as a lawyer, you don't need to put that to be able to delete it. It just makes it easier from a political point of view yeah. when you do. How has the world of defamation changed since the introduction and sort of rise in popularity of social media? Well, I'll say now that the, the world of defamation law hasn't changed as a result of um, the rise of social media and the importance of social media now to that space. So back in 2005, we had a Uniform Defamation Act rolled out pretty much in every Australian state. There is nothing in that act that expressly 
referenced or dealt with any particular social media issues. So social media in 2005 was not even on the radar of the lawmakers, even though in 2005 it was definitely, yeah, definitely out Around. there. Um, so the laws that apply to the online space, be it defamation, Twitter or, or a website, are identical. There's nothing different about the law. So you've still got the concepts of, of publication and it being damaging to someone's reputation um, and then they're not being one of the various defences that you can run to, to try and not be liable. So the law's the same, but I do think that the world of defamation has definitely been massively impacted by social media in that almost any defamation action these days, you know, high majority, will have an element of social media to it, certainly all the big ones, because when, um, you know, say, Jeffrey Rush brings his claim, you know, some of that claim is about a newspaper article, but then there's all the republication uh, on the social media sites of the actual original newspaper yep. media author, but then you've got the republication on social media and from everyone else, all the comments, yep. all the shares, all the likes. That's all now used in the evidence put forward for the issue of damages and impact of what's happened. Um, so social media is now a massive part of, as I said, most defamation actions and indeed has now given rise to a whole host of defamation actions which are only about social media so there's been some probably the most one of the more interesting cases um was over over east where a dog owner um had obviously upset some other dog owners <laughs> and they um someone posted a drew up a like a little poster and it was like a passive aggressive this is a nasty man and he has a nasty dog. I think that's pretty much what it said. Um, beware of this, you know, man and dog. And so they put this poster up, you know, I don't know, on a fence somewhere where obviously people walked their dogs. And then someone else took a photo of the poster and then they posted the photo of the poster on a, a local Facebook group of some sorts. And the action brought against the, the guy with the dog then brought an action against the people that had put the photograph on the Facebook post. Wow. And I don't think he ever knew who did the original poster. So someone actually got to, to slag this guy off for, for free and had no issue, whereas the people who decided to then go and publish that on a local community group were the ones that faced the defamation action, which was successful. Wow. Um, he didn't get lots of money. The courts didn't see it as, you know, it wasn't a, a life-changing uh, judgment um, yeah. from a financial point of view. And and in those cases, to be honest, you know, the the legal costs will often outweigh, uh, the outweigh what a client actually uh, achieves by way of damages. I mean, it's very there's a very different scale between a you know a Jeffrey Rush type case, who's a, a Hollywood actor, and therefore when he gets defamed and potentially loses a few films, that's big bucks. Yeah. But if you're upset because people think you've got a nasty you're not a nice dog guy. and you're a bit rude, which is kind of pretty much what this defamation yeah. was, then the courts won't hand out some massive pay figure. That's so interesting. Like a lot of people probably don't think them posting a photo of something someone else has done can get them in hot water. Correct. And, and I think the, the perfect example for that actually is, is probably Twitter. So the whole concept of Twitter, the virality of Twitter is people reading something and then sharing it or, or, or you know, retweeting it. How much, so when someone famous who's got millions of followers, you know, like someone like you know, Kanye West, Kanye West tweets something which is factual about someone else and is defamatory, and let's just say, for, for the sake of this discussion, it's false, so therefore it would be leg legally actionable. If someone like Kanye West with millions of followers does that, how many of their followers read that allegation and give any thought to whether it's true or not, and whether they know it's true, 
and whether it's damaging. People don't think in those terms when they're on social media, mostly. I mean, I do because I'm a defamation yeah. lawyer. So <laughs> I think of these things. But yeah. the vast majority of people, they'll go, oh, that's interesting. So that, so that other that other pop star does X or whatever X is. <laughs> um, and they just go, retweet. So you've got people with literally millions of people. Now that that... That is uh, bigger than, you know, some newspapers that would be mm. publishing material. And yet the media obviously are, are treated very differently. So I think that, and I, I know that, you know, we may come on to talk about, you know, people on Instagram and influencers, et cetera, but there's this massive power base now online, um, which comes with a fair responsibility when you get into the realms of things like defamation. Um, and as I go back to what I said before, the law is no different. The law is no different to Kanye West than it is to the West Australian. There are, it, it, they're, in law, they're the same. If they publish something, they're liable to the same level. If you say this is like I think Kanye West is X, that's different, right? It's because you're not presenting it as fact. It's an opinion. You're kind of half right. So there is a defence which is opinion and that is that if a statement is clearly expressed and reasonably understood as being an opinion as opposed to a fact, then that can be a defence and it can be uh, seen as you know freedom of speech. However, if uh, the opinion still has to be reasonably held, because otherwise you could just say, it is my opinion that X is a thief, for example. Um, now, if you have no reason to believe that, then you would that could still be defamatory, because otherwise, as I said, everyone could just sidestep defamation by just putting, I believe that. And some people do think that's how it works. Like they think, as long as I just say, it I is think, my opinion, yeah. uh, and then it's a free, it's a free kick. It, it's not. You've got to, you would have to... If you said that as, as a statement of belief and the person actioned it as a defamation matter, in court you would have to then evidence the reasons why you, why you led yourself that. to that conclusion. Okay. And if you've got nothing to back it up, then you could still be liable. Another legal struggle that um, event managers often have is to do with photos taken at events. Yep. What, what sort of legalities are there around photos taken at an event that event managers should be aware of? So the use of photos, a lot of people refer to that in terms of, of privacy. It's, it's a, again, it's a, an oft ununderstood fact that there's no real law or right to privacy under Australian law. It's talked about a lot. We do have a Privacy Act. And so the Privacy Act is there to protect the collection of, use of, dissemination of information, which is considered to be private. Classic example, medical details or tax details, all those things that are just always private. I can pretty much say any information to do with your personal medical health is a private matter in any context. It's the easiest example to use. So that's why we have lots of um, regulation in that space and there's lots of rules about how you collect data and you guys would know that when you're running events and the ability for someone to even sign up to something, um, you know, how you then use those lists of email addresses that you might then have, that's all very controlled. That's the Privacy Act, but that isn't covering a generic right to privacy. We don't have that. We've talked about it for a while. There's been a few um, legal groups uh, looking into whether or not we do bring that in. Other countries have looked at it in detail. Um, what you do have is uh, more the concept of confidentiality. So if people have an expectation of confidentiality slash privacy in certain circumstances then if you breach that confidentiality, then that can be actionable. But that's not an easy 
legal argument to run. So there were some famous cases um, from quite a few years ago now. So Naomi Campbell, the uh, I think she's still a famous model, isn't I she? I believe so. She yes. was when I when yes. I was a younger man. She was anyway. I don't <laughs> know if she still is, but um, she um, she was photographed in the UK leaving a drug treatment clinic, and some paparazzi person um, took a photo. And the, the story was published, you know, Naomi Campbell gets drug counselling. That was that led to a successful action by her in that she ran the argument, which worked, that she had a reasonable expectation of privacy slash confidentiality because of the nature, which again is, is a medical example. So the court in the UK said, no, if someone's going for medical treatment, everyone should have a reasonable expectation that that should remain confidential and anyone should work out, <coughs> excuse me, anyone should work out that if you photograph someone in that kind of context, then you shouldn't be publishing that to the world. Uh, so the what about if we're running an event in a um, public space and there's children coming through and quite often with my clients, they'll say, um, if it's a kid's event, we need to get parental mm-hmm. consent to take their photo and then share it. Well, not to take the photo, but to share it on social media or on the website and things like that. Is that so are you saying that it's not necessary that we have to have that consent to share their image? Children is another space which kind of has its own approach. And, and I think sometimes that's partly out of a community awareness of the importance of that as much as necessarily a legal obligation. I think it's a mixture. I mean, generally speaking, if, if things are being done on private land and most of the events that are run would be run often at some kind of private premises, whether it's a bar or a studio or whatever we're on you know here now on private premises so you can make the rules if you're on private premises um that can include other people not taking photographs so you can't go and film at the cinema for example um you can't take photos at a swimming pool but that one's a good example of a mixture between it being uh usually private property even if it's council owned it's still effectively private property um but you've also got kids involved um now the reason they have the photos the rule against not using your phone in a changing room at a swimming pool is very much focused on children. Um, but at the same time, they've got the ability to do that without having to have any kind of legal argument because it's private property. So you can make the rules if it's your, either if it's your property or you are in control of the property at the time or the event. You make the rules. So that, that's maybe a, a useful you know, takeaway from an event management point of view. Um, but as to your obligation to not use something, I certainly know when I've done any um, work with the, the charity you mentioned earlier that involves being at a school, then there's a no photograph rule generically across you know, any school we go to. And that's you know standard policy I'd expect within schools anyway. Um, so with kids, I think you'd always, yeah, you would always get permission. You'd, you'd never want to take the chance. That's that, the one time I would didn't. suggest definitely get permission. Yeah. But, but if it's adults, there's really no if, – if they're in a public space at an event that's open to the public and they're coming through and we've got a photographer going through, there's no obligation for us to say, can we use your image on social media? If you're in a public space, then uh, there is effectively no right to privacy. If you're running an event, someone attends your event, you're on private property, you take photos, I don't consider that you need to get anyone's permission to use those. However – if you took a photo of someone and that photo somehow showed them in a situation where they might have a reasonable expectation of confidentiality, which I think would be a very rare situation, but it could conceptually arise, you might think twice about whether you use that particular photo showing them in a particular situation or, or setup. 
However, that decision-making, I think, personally, would be as much commercial as legal mm. in the sense that you if you're running an it. event, yeah, if yeah. you're running an event and someone's doing something either, you know, hell inappropriate or hell embarrassing or yeah, maybe may not through any fault of their own, it could just be the situation that that photo depicts is just unfortunate through through no fault of their own, probably wouldn't want to use it anyway. wouldn't want to necessarily uh, impact that relationship or be known as the events company that's willing to mm. to use that photo when clearly yeah. you know it's an unfortunate one i don't think i've heard anyone over 25 use the word hell as an adjective <laughs> in a long time <laughs> <laughs> hell cool hell cool hella i haven't said said that since high school <laughs> I, it must be because i you know spend time in the media space i'm just trying to keep up with the youngsters. yeah well, what I was You're failing. What I was yeah. thinking about <laughs> with event photography and videography, in particular, I've noticed with concerts and anything quite big on the ticket, there's actually a blanket like this might this event might be filmed and you might be on camera. Mm. You yeah. entering is you agreeing. We quite often do that with clients. So we'll just say um, this event is being filmed. It's more of an opt out option yeah, yes. rather than opt in. And so maybe filmed your image, maybe used. If this is a problem for you, please let us know. And we just won't. And I'm sure Roger reads his participant contract. It says, we will use your image for marketing purposes if we would like to. Yeah, like I do my best to get into images. Yeah, I know. Can. Oh, I know. Uh, we know. We know. You frequently get yeah complaints if I'm not. Uh, <laughs> so, no, it, I, I think I think some of that is um, defensive in the sense of, you know, you, you, especially with, <laughs> with lawyers, we can always <laughs> find things to you know, suggest as, as other ways of reducing risk. But to use that example of the concert, um, you know, if someone turns up to a public concert, the idea that they could run um, a, a good legal argument that they shouldn't have been photographed or that their photograph shouldn't have been used, it's a minute risk, legally speaking. However, really bad legal claims do get run, in particular by people not using lawyers who just run their own claims. So um, sometimes as lawyers, we manage risk that shouldn't be a risk, still could be like someone could come up with some crazy argument that they're at the Foo Fighters concert and they've appeared in this photo of about 800 other people <laughs> and how dare they be there in the middle. Now that's a crazy legal argument that would never work, but that doesn't stop some people going to the magistrate's court and actually issuing a claim against Dave Grohl, maybe, who knows. But Who's got the most money? Like, it does yeah. happen. <laughs> it does happen. You get some absolutely, you know, some, some crazy legal arguments run and some of what we do is to manage the crazies as much as the general... Gen, yeah, the actual the genuine reasonable claims, yeah. legal arguments. You spoke about influencers before, but to elaborate on that, what are some things that businesses should be aware of when using influencers to boost their marketing? Um, I would some juice. Yes. I would start with actually a medical concept, which is the you know, the the underpinning concept of medical health is do no harm. That's what doctors are trained. I would apply that to um, using an Instagram influencer, because for, for me, you're considering engaging them commercially to get access to their extensive network. I mean, surely that's what an Instagram influencer is there to do. You are asking that all of the people that follow uh, that person um, are going to see your product or see them talking about you or whatever. So if you're trying to get access to this big network, the worst possible thing is to have a negative message come out in that network because you're actually considering paying money and maybe you will pay money to get access to it. So to actually come out with a bad outcome in that context is surely the worst thing that could happen. So for that reason, from a legal standpoint, um, it's not at all unusual in, in a whole host of different types of agreement to have what's called a, what we call it a non-disparagement clause, 
um, probably layman term was just don't slag each other off uh, clause. <laughs> um, so I would say if you're going to pay someone money, and I, and I am partly saying this because I have seen examples of when Instagram influencer agreements go wrong. Um, Which I hope you share with us. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, no, I should. I, yeah, I can definitely share it in so at least uh, the basic uh, basic terms. So if if uh, if the Instagram influencer, if that relationship somehow goes off the rails, then for them to then go on to their network and have a big whinge about you is terrible as a commercial outcome because you were thinking of paying money to actually get to that network. So I would say a standard standard approach would be, look, if we're going to enter into this contractual relationship with you for you to do this job, then um, come what may, doesn't matter what happens between us, we contractually agree not to ever say anything nasty about each other publicly, full stop. And that's a contractual thing that they then sign up to. That and you it, can, and you this can should enforce. be something for mm. a certain period or forever? Most of the ones that I'd include would be certainly forever in the context of whatever it is you're dealing with. That is hard if you're talking about someone coming in to spruik a particular, you know, product. Um, but no, I must admit, if I was the if I was acting for the company engaging Instagram influencers, I wouldn't be looking to limit the longevity of that obligation. I think if they're going to receive money from the company, I don't see it as a big ask that they never therefore say anything nasty about that company. And is this something that used to happen with actresses and models and other high-profile people that have been paid in the past to advertise a product? Quite possibly. Like, I, I wish I could say that I'd acted for lots of models. Um, <laughs> when you are I, the model, how can you act yeah. for models, you know? Uh, no, exa- yeah, exactly. No, I, 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 don't, um, I don't have a great deal of model law uh, expertise. <laughs> much, a separate my, niche. Much to my regret. Ambassadors. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but it would make sense. Do you have any examples of when an Instagram contract has gone wrong? Well, I have dealt with, uh, I we act quite a lot in the health sector. So we have quite a few clients in the, um, everything from you know, dentistry side up to cosmetic surgery. So we, we have quite a few cosmetic surgeons and clinics uh, on the books at, uh, at Cove Legal. So I have dealt with a few matters that involve Instagram influences and cosmetic procedures, um, which is a, is a tricky space because um, everything about cosmetics is obviously very visual. I mean, that's kind of the point. So it's cosmetic. It's cosmetic. It's aesthetics. So as a result, um, uh, you get a lot of advertising in on social media, in particularly Instagram, because that's the visual platform. Um, so you have a lot of uh, a lot of that going on. Even uh, although it's quite a restricted area because it's it's medical, so the ability to market is quite it's quite a complicated space but i have yeah dealt with some cases certainly one where a cosmetic procedure was undertaken and in the surgeon's eyes had gone really well but the uh, patient was unhappy with the outcome and i'm trying to simplify this and basically uh, the argument because i acted on i acted for the surgeon the first letter i got from the lawyers acting for the patient basically said you didn't do x which involved something being injected into them you didn't, you didn't inject enough. Can you say and, where and wanted, the injection was? It was into her bottom. <laughs> into her bottom. So this is the uh, Kim Kardashian procedure, as we might call it, uh, the Brazilian butt lift, um, which I'm quite I'm quite proud to be an expert in Brazilian butt lift. Roger law. Blow, the Brazilian butt lift <laughs> expert. Oh, yeah, to Brazilian butt lift, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, she considered that insufficient of her own uh, lipoed fat had been injected into her own buttocks <laughs> and as a result said 
using her lawyers. You need to give me my money back because this wasn't good enough. My butt is not lifted enough. Yep. Not big enough, lifted enough, whatever. Oof. It's weird, actually. 20 years ago, the entire world was trying to make butts smaller. Yeah. Now, now, apparently, we're trying to get them bigger. I can't um, pop a champagne cork into the glass on my butt. Yeah. <laughs> I have to hold it like a loser. I, uh, <laughs> so, um, so I wrote back, and, and as a matter of, of just interest, Brazilian butt lift is the most risky cosmetic procedure known to the sector. More deaths from those than any other procedure around the world. That every year. Is Better cancel wine. Surprising. Uh, it you is. would think it would be something in your face. No, no, it's because the ability for, if it's not done uh, properly or if just someone's, I suppose, particularly unlucky, the uh, risk of there being a breakaway bit of the fat that you've injected and then it becomes an embolism risk because if it gets round to the heart, then you've got a cardiac arrest. So it's the oh. same as deep vein thrombosis with plane travel, et cetera. If you get a clot, then that can end up in trouble. So that's, so it's, it's, it's high risk. So and the takeaway here, folks, is do your squats. Just yeah. squat, squat, squat. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, the, the first response back was your client's case is, this is from me, your client's case is basically based on an argument that her life was not risked because this is the most risky thing that you can do and the more you put in, the more risk there is. So The my, more fat you put in. Yeah. So my client has, because the point is she, she had more taken out than went in. So she had like two litres taken out and she had 600 mil put in. How dare you steal my fat? Well, it started out with an argument. If you didn't put enough in, you should have put more in, and yeah, you've been your client's been negligent. So I wrote back and said, "No, your client's that life wasn't risked." When so you're writing your letters, do you think sometimes, "God, I went to law school for all this"? Actually, to be honest, actually writing about the legal principles surrounding a Brazilian butt lift argument has been one of the more enjoyable things <laughs> I've actually had to do probably in the last five years. That's actually, how we end up yeah. getting Roger on the podcast is we were talking <laughs> about this socially, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> Because whilst you know tax litigation is something I specialise in, very it's exciting it's, stuff. Yes, yeah, it's very, it's quite regular work and, and interesting in its own way. Obviously, Brazilian butt lifters is, is a different kettle of fish. Um, <laughs> so, so that's the first argument. So I wrote back and said that your argument's actually going to look terrible in front of a court. And then they tried to regroup and they came back with a different argument, which is our client had two leaders taken out. She was a young, fit, healthy woman. She didn't need two leaders of liposuction, so you took too much out. So we, we now aren't going to argue that you didn't put enough into the buttocks, mm-hmm. but you took too much out of everywhere else. Uh, and my response to that was, you're not a doctor, I'm not a doctor, but you're trying to run arguments based on medical requirements or non-requirements. And we're talking about cosmetic surgery where nothing's necessary. I actually didn't wish need a Brazilian butt lift you could either. all see Tam's face right now as Roger's <laughs> telling this story. She's just like, <laughs> what? I, I'm perplexed. Like, yeah. <laughs> This is really, it must be hard to be in your position. Well, you, but you actually are making quite a matter of fact statement. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what they're talking about. They're the doctors and it, nothing needed to be done at all. Well, because lawyers are, yeah, when we're trying to build arguments, what we're paid for is to come up with arguments uh, for our particular client in whatever context. And they were doing their best to polish a very bad argument. Uh, I mean, there was no decent legal case to run there, but they were just doing their best to come up with something. But trying to say you've taken too much lipo uh, procedural suction out of my client um, was never going to, it's never going to run before a court because you'd need expert evidence, etc. And she was, I've seen the picture. She was a very fit, young, healthy lady well, she was, yeah. who was an Instagram influencer and was, you know, clearly went to the gym every day, but was just wanting doing her squats, some minor obviously. changes, etc. So, so yeah, it's, um, it is a complicated space. I mean, I, th- I think it's even more complicated because obviously even in that space of, cosmetic surgery for example you know there's a whole number of issues coming in there about you know what what people are doing and the looks they're going for 
um, and, you know, their own view of their own I looks. I was just going to say, it's, it's probably quite subjective. Like I could go to a surgeon and say, I want to look like, I want to get this done to look like X and they could do the procedure like textbook correctly and I still might not like the outcome and try and take legal action because I'm not happy with the, the final result. Yeah, yeah, my, my health clients in that space have to have quite extensive documentation to make sure that, well, they should have if they want to manage their <laughs> legal risk. Um, they need to make sure that the documentation is nice and clear. Um, but you're, you're dealing with some clients there who have, you know, for example, you know, say dysmorphic ideas on, on oh, shape. Yeah. Like that adds just a whole layer of complication again. Um, and obviously if someone decides to take legal action where what underlies that legal action is say a, you know, a dysmorphic view that that's really complicated because yeah that's not uh, ultimately that probably won't work before the court but it doesn't mean that you don't have the legal argument to begin with um so that's kind of where my job is to try and recognize those types of cases and try and bring them to an end and sometimes that won't necessarily be from being really aggressive as a lawyer it might be the opposite it might be trying to actually sit down and talk emotionally and sensibly and say look this isn't going to be good for anyone um let's before try and find event managers we really need to bring it back to contract 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 and being very careful in what we're saying they're going to deliver and what we want and having that clarity from the very beginning yeah it's similar to the classic example often is say with is that it's with it contracts where you've often got a complete disparity between what the client thinks they're going to get and what they're going to get in that it say software thing and i think you would have similar issues uh, or, or even say house building you know, the, what, what, what the person thinks their house is going to look like as opposed to what's actually even capable of being done with mm. respect to all the regulations and what can make a wall stand up or whatever. So I know that builders often have issues between a disparity between their clients' expectations and what they deliver. Uh, and your industry would be similar in that someone might have in their own view a very specific vibe, to, to, to use a word, which is probably really unhelpful. It's hell vibey, you well, know? Well, of course, uh, is vibe okay? Am I, am I young enough to use vibe? No? Too old? No, Borderline. And vibe Borderline. works perfectly with influencers because yeah, they have vibes in their feed. Yeah. And if you're asking them to do something very particular for your client and say and write particular words about a competition or something like that and it might not suit their vibe <laughs> and you haven't put it in the contract, it's there's a blurred area and they might post and you may have paid them hundreds of maybe <laughs> some hundreds of thousands of dollars or mm. thousands of dollars and they're not vibing it. But it's also a great word to use because it, it's been used in um, popular culture with the movie The Castle, one of the more famous Australian movies, Castle, where the lawyer stands up and when he hasn't got the proper legal argument, I think this is in, in the film before the, the decent counsel gets called in to help and he tries to run that from the from the court bench of oh, it's the vibe it's of Marbo. the act, Marbo, the vibe. The vibe. <laughs> now, so as lawyers, we make jokes about the vibe from coming out of that film. Yeah. So it's a great example in the sense that when you put these issues into a legal context and you're trying to draw up a contract, you can't use things like the vibe because mm. it doesn't mean anything. We all we Just all to quantify it, and how can you? We all have a rough idea of what a vibe is, but when you try and actually say that you have to deliver a certain vibe, what the hell would that ever mean to any of us? We, we could all come up with a different interpretation. And our job as lawyers is to narrow the risk of something being interpreted two different ways, if we if we draft in the contract anyway. Um, as a litigator, I'm called in 
to argue one half of the argument and therefore I interpret it and run arguments as to why it means what my client wants it to mean. But if you're trying to draft it and you're trying to protect yourselves from an event management point of view, you know, how do you set out what you're going to do and what you're going to deliver in a way that can't then be misinterpreted or you can't get to a point where they're expecting X but you're delivering Y? Um, that That's the challenge. Um, but if you've got a complete disparity of expectation, then you're going to potentially end up in a in a problem. And the, the other example of an influencer was a case that was in the papers only maybe a month ago where an Instagram influencer successfully sued a cafe. She went to the cafe, I think, and bought breakfast and she must have had quite a decent following to be paid to do this because uh, I'd happily do it for yeah, probably... I think we all would. Quite yes. frankly, a free breakfast. Uh, but... Um, but yeah, so if anyone's out there listening, yeah, uh, Cove Legal, Roger Blow, free breakfast. Roger Blow for um, free breakfast. But this person, this person had a following, so she went, did the photo. Uh, I think the case even confirmed that there was like a, a an uplift in, in footfall from the cafe, but she had a practice of deleting older content when it had kind of got to a certain point, and so she ended up deleting it. And I, reading between the lines, I get the impression the cafe decided for whatever reason they didn't want to pay her. Maybe they weren't quite happy with the outcome. And then they used the argument, well, she's deleted it now, so why do we have to pay her anything? And the court ended up holding that an Instagram influencer does not have to keep content for any kind of particular period or that wasn't in the contract that she had to. Um, I actually think that's a really, as a lawyer, I think it's a really grey area. And that's actually one of the hints and tips I'd use, whether you're either using an Instagram influencer or if you are one and you're about to contract with a company, that's the kind of thing that should be in there. Like any contract should have a term, a length of time. So if you think that Instagram influencer is going to be spruiking your product for the next you know, year and they're thinking one month, that's a massive difference mm. in expectations. Mm. So it's It not makes a big difference if you've got someone yeah. who's got 10,000 likes and similar amount of comments on their post and suddenly it's gone and you want to reference it. Or, or, or especially if you want to rely on, say, a hashtag being searched for mm-hmm. that would otherwise be picked up and take someone back to their feed mm-hmm. and the fact that they've been there, um, obviously that goes away if they delete it. So, I mean, t- to a lawyer, that's not complicated. So that's 101. Like how long, how long are you going to keep it up there for? So the idea that people could not nail that down is, is quite surprising, but obviously yeah, happens. that is happening. Well, people just don't think about it because it's such a new field. They yep. just don't think that someone's going to delete something or they don't they just they just don't think about the concept. And I think you inherently want to believe the best in people. So you don't know that someone's deleting things and it might not be a malicious thing as you said people just clear their feed but mm. and the use of influencers is still kind of in the infancy so I think mm. people are trying to work out what the best thing to do is. Do you have any advice for influencers on what to sort of look at for contracting? Uh, so, sounds probably commercial as much as it is legal but um I'll probably have a think about it. If you are an influencer, therefore you are, for that moment in time at least, you are your business, uh, you are your brand, and your brand is you in, in the sense of making money out of it. So I'd have a certainly a good think about whether the company or the product trying to engage me is my brand because every time you go and spruik something that's really not key to or, or in that space that you operate in, you're potentially damaging your own brand. Um, you've also got the issue of people are only following you because of your content. The second that you start either promoting things that really don't fit just with, like random with your things. world. Yeah. I mean, if someone's, I don't know. So if someone's following someone because they're you know, effectively a, say, a bikini model and they're always down the beach in a bikini, their followers are following them. 
if they then go and, you know, look to promote something which is a world away from that and the content is no longer anything like the content in the history, then they're probably going to damage their own uh, their own following, their own brand, and therefore the next one that they want to be engaged for is now looking at a lower, you know, a lower following. So it's looking at it quite commercially, whereas I think building a following on, say, uh, Instagram or, or Facebook is not necessarily a commercial. I mean, people may do it with a view to what they can then make out of it but the skills and the strategies you're using to build a following are not necessarily anything about any particular brand or or commercial view but once you start trying to use it in a commercial way you've got to be quite strategic in in how you do that and and what's going to work for you i'd have a think about editorial content control i should say editorial control so if it's your feed can the uh can the company engaging you tell you what to say um, if you want to get really legal, technical, things like misleading, deceptive conduct is a, a quintessentially Australian cause of action. It kind of, it's something that makes our system a bit different around the world. It's the, it's the legal action that actually scares global companies coming to trade in Australia because it's so potentially wide. So if you are engaged in business or commerce, which is quite a wide ambit, and you do something which is misleading or deceptive, which is quite wide wording, then you can be liable to someone if in doing that you cause them damage. So it really is that, it's that wide. It's a, it's a statutory argument that exists at, at federal law level across the whole of Australia. And it's sometimes the cause of action you use when all the other legal arguments don't quite fit, but you've been wronged and it's been unfair and they've done something a bit nasty. And it's amazing what you can get. You can get those facts into misleading and deceptive conduct. Um. Yeah, I, I thought the um, the Instagram influencer side is is definitely an interesting space. I think for the future. So if Be- you're a small business or an event manager that's wanting to use an influencer, where would you go to get information on how to put together a contract that's going to be watertight? Well, I don't think there are any lawyers, or at least there's no lawyers out there I'm aware of. Um, that would say that they are, you know, Instagram influencer lawyers. It's it's by no means a big enough space. I mean, even even me as a media or social media lawyer, that's pretty niche. That's pretty unusual. There wouldn't be many people that would even give themselves that title. Um, so it's it's. I mean, commercial lawyers drafting contracts, and we often fall within those of us drafting contracts. Those of us arguing at court, and those of us then doing things like property, etc. So you get into little niche areas. Um, or you get into a sector. So anyone in the media sector, um, the entertainment sector, you would think would be getting into those spaces. Were you across the influencer saga with Fire Festival? And in that sense, they truly believed that they weren't being misleading, that they were promoting an event that was going to be amazing. And uh, then they were held accountable for it when the event failed through no fault of their own. What's your view on that? As I understand it, there was a big festival promoted that was going to be amazing. And then it was kind of a, effectively like a man of straw in that there wasn't actually anything behind it. So someone somewhere obviously would have known from an early stage that there was nothing to it. Um, the question would be, legally speaking, how far down the chain do you need to go? before there is general that uh, genuine culpability mm. however going back to my concept before that you know for example misleading and deceptive conduct if you're reckless as to 
the fact and, and you go out and you promote something and you get people to sign up and pay money and you're promoting something that ends up being a complete sham, then, yeah, you, you are risking liability. So when you say no fault of your own, um, maybe from a legal context I would add in, however, subject to recklessness because that's a concept in, in law that it stops people being able to say, yeah, but I didn't know. Mm. But if you're reckless in some way, shape or form, then even if you didn't know for sure that what you were saying, for example, in that scenario was, was false, you were reckless as to whether it was true. That makes sense. But how can an influencer protect themselves? If a business comes to them and says, can you promote this event? We're selling tickets. It's going to be amazing. They sign the contract to do everything that you've said. And that event doesn't happen. It falls through. The money's not refunded. The company goes bankrupt. In my mind, there's no way that influencer would have known that, should be held accountable for that. However, it seemed to be with the Fire Festival example that the likes of Kylie Jenner were hold, held accountable. Were they just making an example of them perhaps? Mm. Well, I would say, I mean, I've, th- th- those you've, you've just given me more facts than I knew before. <laughs> so, so You're welcome. So I'm, I'm shooting, shooting from the hip somewhat. Right, but sorry. Based, no, no, but what I mean is based just on those facts, I would say that that would be a very difficult legal argument to run against the influencer. So I think mm. I'm agreeing with you in that if that's all that happens, so if someone comes to someone and says, hey, can you promote this? They promote it. That's it. And then the whole the whole event falls under. Then the people that paid their money, they paid their money to an entity of some sorts, to a company, no doubt. That company's the target for the legal action to recover the money. That is the target for any, for a lawyer, that would be our target. Yes, you could consider adding in the Instagram influencer. Um, and you would do, if you were following the strategy that we do often follow, which is you just try and find as many defendants as possible because the more pockets you aim at, the more chance you've got of recovering, you know, some money for your client. That's kind of a generic litigation strategy. Um, you might include the influencer for that reason, but it wouldn't necessarily mean the legal argument against them was particularly strong. Uh, so, so all I'm saying is the fact that an Instagram influencer in that scenario was included in the legal case, if there is even is one, isn't necessarily a sign that we should take across the board that all Instagram influencers are going to be liable for anything and everything they do. Because, for example, Kendall Jenner would be a very different potential target compared to just, say, your average run-of-the-mill local Instagram influencer with 5,000 followers mm-hmm. who maybe hasn't got much money. You wouldn't sue them in the same way, strategically. So is there any way an influencer can protect themselves against that? Is there any point putting something in the contract about if this event or if this product, it's no fault of their own if yep. something So, Well, there is in the sense that the, the Instagram influencer cannot impact any legal liability or rights between them and third persons outside of the contract. So, you know, the general public say, to, to follow that example... You can't change that because obviously there's no contract with all these different people that paid their money for the for the concert. What you can do is seek um, what's called an indemnity from the company engaging you as an influencer and you can say, and this is a very, very, very standard type of clause in, in a whole host of different types of agreements. So you can say, if you're going to get me to come on board and spruik this event as an Instagram influencer, you have to indemnify me for any loss, claim, cause, action, uh, legal claim. Well, and, and the paragraph will then run for about another three or four lines of every possible word that mm-hmm. I can think of 
to describe a bad thing happening that could ever happen arising from that situation. Um, and then you say, you indemnify me for anything that goes wrong in the in these spaces. So if, to use your example again, if you are a Jenner and you get sued because you spruked a concert that never happened and you're the one now being named, you would seek you would seek to use that indemnity against the um, organiser for all of your legal costs that you incur in fighting it and any money that has to be paid as a result of that legal action. The problem in that scenario, though, is that if this concert didn't happen and the whole thing collapsed... Probably got no money. Chances (laughs) are the company behind Mm. it probably disappeared in a solvency sense anyway, in which case you're going after effectively a dead duck. Or CEO's in jail, you know. Yeah. So the one thing I stress is an indemnity in your favour from a company that no longer exists means nothing. It could be why they went after them as well then, if there was no company to go after. That's true. There you go. Well, that wraps up our green room for today. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Roger. You're very welcome. Treasure trove of information. Lots of stuff that can be a bit dry, but it's stuff I think we all need to be aware of. The social media sphere really opens you up to defamation more than you would think. Yeah, now the concept of the online space is a free-for-all and has no you know, legal relevance is, is a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Same laws uh, apply everywhere, but um, yeah, they can be a bit harder to enforce sometimes with the online stuff, but mm. it's definitely there in the background. Well, thanks for translating it into layman's terms for us. I'll do my best. And where can people <laughs> find you, Roger? Oh, well, they could find, <laughs> me, uh, they could find me at Cove Legal's website, uh, covelegal.com.au. Uh, or else, uh, yep, easy to find online generally. In fact, I think there's a Facebook page and DJ an Rogue. There's probably page. a fan page for DJ Rogue. Uh, or I no. was probably told to start maybe, one. Maybe underground that I don't know about yep. would would make would make sense to me. But uh, but no, I don't think actually officially. And available for events, Wiki Wiki. Yep, yep. Well, I do it. I do it for the the, the charity fundraising for that cycling event. So yeah, it's a very tax deductible uh, way of booking a DJ. Actually. <laughs> yeah, because it's free. Wow. Great to meet you. Thank you very much. much. Thank you. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. For your chance to have your questions answered or join our conversation, jump into our Facebook group, Behind the Clipboard Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Behind the Clipboard Podcast. (laughs) 